Tēnā koutou nō mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. We are not ready. Climate change is here. Our cities are not ready. Our transport networks, telecommunications, our water infrastructure, all of it has been left wanting. And people are being killed. Apocalypse. It looks like we've had a giant bomb going off. You're on the roofs for four hours, you know. It's pretty tough. And you wanted to let your whanau know that your fellas are all right, eh? Yes, yes. All right, whanau. This morning on Q&A, we're going to look at some of the big questions in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle. And this two words New Zealanders are going to get used to hearing over the next few years is managed retreat. We have to understand where communities can be made more resilient, where we can do things to the infrastructure so they can stay where they are, and other communities and neighbourhoods where actually we have to accept it's no longer appropriate. A detailed conversation with the Finance Minister very shortly, but we're going to begin this morning with the very latest from some of the worst hit areas. Five days on, police have confirmed nine deaths and they have grave concerns for another ten people. Bit by bit, local communities are working to get basic services and infrastructure back running. Kirsten Wise is the Mayor of Ahuriri Napier and she's with us this morning and looking at that shot you would never have guessed what Napier has been through over the last few days. Thank you for being with us. Five days into this event, how is your city faring? Oh, look, we've got some very fragile, um, anxious people within our community. Fortunately, for about 30% of uh, our community, we have power restored now, and that has made a huge difference. Uh, our CBD, the power is restored there. Um, but my heart goes out to the rest of, of our residents who still don't have power. We're hopeful that they'll have that um, by close of business tomorrow. What kind of assistance is going to be most important for, for your community over the next few days? Uh, well, obviously, it is about getting those lifeline services restored, first and foremost, ensuring that all of our community have uh, somewhere to stay, a roof over their head, food, fuel, all of those basic necessities. And then we'll start moving into the recovery phase where we really need to support all our local businesses um, so that they then, in turn, can support their staff. Uh, so, yeah, there's, this is going to be a really long road to recovery. Kirsten, in some communities and at cell phone tower sites there have been reports over the last 24 hours about looting. How much is crime a concern for you at the moment? Oh, it is a huge concern. Uh, I'm getting constant messages from people who are worried about, um, you know, there's people driving around in cars shooting guns. Um, we have, yes, definitely had looting. I'm in, I'm in constant contact with the police just to ensure that um, they are doing everything they can and I will certainly be reaching out. The, the PM was here on Friday. He assured mm. me that if we needed more police resourcing, he'd make that available. So I'm going to definitely be making sure we've got what we need. When it comes down to it, Napier has some serious experience when it comes to natural disasters. Not only in the last few years, of course the flooding two years ago was significant, but we think of uh, Napier's history as a city and immediately we think of that 1930s earthquake. Is there anything about this event that has surprised you? 
I think uh, what's really interesting is it's highlighted how incredibly reliant we are on the likes of power and telecommunications. So um, I was sitting at home on Wednesday night and you know normally you can use all manner of different platforms to, to reach out to your loved ones and stay in touch with them and sitting there and of course none of them were working, couldn't text, couldn't call, couldn't go on Facebook Messenger and just feeling so incredibly isolated um, and you know I think we need to put some thought into how we can actually build more resilience into those types of services so that we don't end up in this situation again. Yeah, is it fair to say that um, the lack of resilience when it comes to that infrastructure has surprised local authorities? Oh, absolutely, and the community at large as well. Um, to realise that there's actually no backup plan if cell towers go down, um, no backup plan when your major substation for, mm. for power is completely, uh, you know, wiped out. It really is, you know, quite concerning. When it comes to resilience, I note that Napier Deputy Mayor Annette Brosnan said yesterday in a Facebook post that blame should go to the government for underinvestment in the roading network and civil defence capability. Do you share those views? Uh, look, I support what my Deputy Mayor said, but the important thing at the moment is actually to focus on the immediate needs of our community. So we need to really just wrap our arms around all of our community and make mm. sure they're getting what they need over the coming days. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. Obviously, the, you know, the, the immediate concerns when it comes to infrastructure, power, road access, um, communications, that kind of thing is the focus for you right now, supporting those people who are most isolated. There are some significant big questions that are going to inevitably uh, come up from this event though and, and one of them is around the jurisdiction of local councils. I noted as well as that uh, criticism for the government, your Deputy Mayor highlighted Napier Council not having jurisdiction over the neighbouring Esk Valley where of course so much um, damage and destruction has occurred in the last few days. Is greater regional coordination when it comes to or you know, even amalgamation of councils perhaps an answer for disaster resilience going into the future? We do actually already operate our civil defence services at a regional level and actually I think that we need to go the opposite direction. It needs to be more localised because what we've really struggled with is the fact that our, um, our, our civil defence group, the regional group, are based in Hastings. So when mm. we were completely cut off um, physically with no roads and of course with the services, no power, no telecommunications, it made it really, really difficult for us to actually um, move forward in the way that we needed to because mm. it was group um, that that had the delegation and the decision-making powers. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to be advocating uh, when they review this, as they most certainly will, mm. um, that we need to find a way to empower local councils to meet the needs of their local community when mm. you're in experiencing some, an event like this. Mm. The event's thrown up some big questions too about where we are living and where we're developing housing. Again, I know this isn't an immediate concern, but we on Q&A have been following the development of the Riverbend residential development in, uh, in Napier, and that is a curious name given the events of the last few days. That's uh, a development with a proposed 600 homes in Marae Nui in Napier. It was fast-tracked by central government. It was flooded two years ago. Once again this week, it has been seriously flooded. What do you think are some of the questions that are going to come out of this event when it comes to residential development? 
Oh, look, this clearly highlights that actually here in Napier, we cannot be building more houses in areas like Riverbend Road, which is very low-lying. Uh, we've been working on a spatial plan here for our city for quite some time now, and um, we know we know where we should be building, and it's out in the Western Hills. It's intensification around our existing um, urban shopping areas, and you know, I just I sincerely hope that those that are responsible for making the decisions around the Riverbend Road development are watching what's happening at the moment, because that is the last place that we should be putting houses. Yeah, Napier isn't the only city that is going to be considering where it develops housing in the future. Thank you so much for your time. We know it's been a huge few days and we know you are going to have a pretty difficult period ahead. That is the Mayor of Ahuriri Napier, Kirsten Wise. After the break, the big economic questions from Cyclone Gabrielle. Roads gone, bridges gone, pipes smashed, communications networks absolutely woeful. Why has our infrastructure been so decimated? Okay, Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Before we play you this next interview, there is an important acknowledgement to make. The cost of Cyclone Gabrielle will be measured in many ways, but in no way is it greater than in the lives of those who were killed in the storm. The economic cost is going to be massive. And in a high inflation environment with major labour shortages, the government now faces some critical decisions about its spending priorities. I sat down with Finance Minister Grant Robertson. I think we should break this down into two parts. Let's talk first of all about the immediate response, support packages and repairs, and then after that we can look at the longer term issues around infrastructure resilience. I don't think anyone is expecting an exact dollar figure at this stage, but can you just give us a sense as to the scale of the response required? Yeah, it is very hard to judge because obviously we've still been making contact with people just within the last day or so. Uh, if we try to find a point of comparison, when we were dealing with COVID, it was the whole country. And so therefore the scale of what we did had to support everybody. This is probably somewhere more akin to Kaikoura and the Canterbury earthquakes because it's quite regional, but there are a number of regions involved. And clearly the level of devastation in terms of infrastructure, in terms of people's homes and businesses is very high. So it, it, it's going to be the biggest weather-related event this century, and it will have a multi-billion dollar price tag. Multi-billion? Tens of billions. And that's really around where we'd, we need to get a bit more information. I mean, um, Canterbury was up in that sort of 13 billion area. Um, I expect this to be near there, but it's still very early days. Um, clearly, that's the total cost. Some of that's absorbed by insurance. Um, some of that's absorbed by uh, government agencies' existing budgets, but that's around the ballpark that we're looking at right now in terms of the cost. But each day we discover more, each day we understand more. As Finance Minister, what are your immediate priorities? Well, the basic priorities are the ones that I think everyone would expect us to have. We want people to have shelter, we want people to have food, access to power, access to water, access to communications. And they are the core things that we've been working on over the last week. And every single day that improves. Every day there's more coverage for people in terms of being able to communicate, more people's power is brought back on. 
Transport networks are a real issue and that will take longer. Some of those bridges that have gone out, roads that are blocked will take a lot longer. But those core basics are the, the core of the response phase and we are making good progress even though it'll feel very, very tough on the ground if you're living without power, for example. What are you planning in terms of support packages? So we've had the immediate packages that have gone in places, how we run these things. So the mural relief funds are up. We've got money gone in there, a million dollars into each of the Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay ones. We can't forget the other regions of New Zealand, Northland, Coromandel, that have already been affected. We've got our rural support package that's already in place with about $4 million having gone into that, as well as obviously the civil defence payments that go out to individuals. And it is worth remembering that, that those civil defence payments through the Ministry of Social Development are available. About $17 million has already gone out to both Auckland and these communities, and we'll just keep rolling out those responses. What more are you considering? Are you considering things like uh, wage subsidies, targeted support for the horticulture industry? We're certainly looking at sector by sector and what is needed there, and also regional response packages. And this is where it's a bit different from COVID in the sense that things are going to be different in different places. Right. I, I, my heart goes out to the, the primary producers in these regions who've potentially lost their whole crops or their whole herds. We have to work our way through what that looks like. Well, well, give, me some, give me some examples of what that might look like at this stage. Yeah, well, look, early days thinking, sure. and we're still not there yet, but obviously we've got to get people in to help, you know, so there's a labour force issue about how we do that. Um, there's support to be able to physically replant and rebuild and so on. Clearly a lot of people are insured in these environments and they'll be working through with their banks and their insurers and we're trying to help facilitate that work as well. But I don't want to land yet on a package unless it's the appropriate one and the package we provide in Northland might be quite different from the one we provide in the Hawke's Bay depending on those circumstances. Will you commit to ring-fencing the money for the Cyclone Gabriel response? Oh, we'll be very clear about what's been spent. But again, we will learn the lessons out of COVID as well. You know, we've got to give the agencies responsible the ability to get on with it. So let's take Waka Kotahi in terms of roading. When we had the Auckland floods just two or three weeks ago, we already knew we were looking at maybe a billion dollar bill there. This extends out from that. So we've got to be able to say the money's there for this. But of course we'll be clear and transparent about where it's going. Well, I guess the issue is when we compare it to say COVID for example, I think about the, the, the money from that COVID fund, it went to funding the excise tax cut, it went to funding cameras on fishing boats, it went to the cost of living payment, that went to dead people. And I think this is the difference between COVID and the situation here. With COVID we were operating in an environment of maximum uncertainty. We didn't know what the overall impact on the economy was going to be. We set up a very broad fund right. because we knew that we would need that. That's exactly what I'm saying to you is with this, even though we're still learning the extent of the impact, it's quite clear where that impact is. It's on roads, it's on businesses in those particular communities, it's the power network, it's water right. infrastructure. So I think we can be more uh, targeted in what we do in terms of a response. You've been planning a $4.5 billion operating allowance or new spending as it's known in this year's budget. More than half of that is already committed. In a high inflation environment, this is a critical question. Will you tighten your belt in order to contain inflation? Oh, we, we continually look to what we can do to support the Reserve Bank, who obviously have the main job when it comes to managing inflation. And you would have heard from both them and also the Treasury that our fiscal policy is supporting that monetary policy. It's a balance, Jack. 
because I think everyone out there will understand we, it's all hands to the pump here. The government has to come in, but what we want to make sure we do that in such a way that we support the people without exacerbating those issues. But will you kill more darlings as a result of cycling? Oh, we're going to have to be very careful in the spending that we do, but we always were going to have to be careful. I think it's really important for New Zealand, though, that a budget achieves the goal of walking and chewing gum at the same time. We have to deal with what's in front of us right now. New Zealanders would expect us to help people out. That's what we should do. But at the same time, we've got to be planning for the future. So, yep, we'll be careful. We're not going to blow things apart here fiscally, but yeah. we've got to respond to the needs that are in front of us. And we have... I'll just finish this point. We have the headroom fiscally to do that without, I believe, unnecessarily exacerbating inflation. I, I, just, I just think we need some certainty on this point. In what ways will Cyclone Gabrielle ultimately affect the government's policy agenda? Yeah. So what it means, I think there's, there's a short-term and a long-term answer to that. In the short Let's go short-term, yeah, yeah. In the short-term, we've got to make sure that we've got the people in the parts of New Zealand who need it having their roads fixed, having their infrastructure network fixed. So that will shift sequencing, phasing. There might be some projects in those sorts of areas, those sorts of sectors, sorry, in other areas of the country that won't go ahead so quickly. So, for example... Is Cyclone Gabrielle likely to affect a project such as Auckland's light rail? I think there you come into a timing question because the stage we're at with Auckland light rail is more the planning and design phase. They're not people digging up no. the Auckland light rail. So you can Despite look at early promises. <laughs> you can look at the project and say, well, actually, we can keep going with that. But there are other roading projects, so other you will transport continue projects. The light rail project. Look, those decisions from cabinet haven't been made. It sounds but like we're sounds going like, ahead. Right. We're going ahead now on the basis of the decisions that we've previously made. I'm more making the point that there are more immediate, you know, work going on around the country that might get slowed down. So, for example, right now, we're working to bring crews from the South Island right. up to the North Island to be able to deal with that. Inevitably, that'll make a difference. Can you still offer income support in the form of tax changes or perhaps changes to working for families whilst funding the response to Cycling Gabrielle? Yeah, and these are the issues we're working through right now. What is your immediate response to that? Well, my immediate response is we've got to support the people in the wake of Cycling Gabrielle. Sure, but is that a darling, for example, that you're going to have to Look, kill? Look, I think... I think we're still, we haven't finalised our, our tax policy for the election, and when we do... What does your gut say? As my, gut says, the my gut says that you've always got to work for both the short and the long term. Right. Um, but my view is that there is a massive need for investment in public services in New Zealand before Cyclone Gabrielle came along. Right. And so the balance between what you can do to support people and their cost of living through things like the tax system, you have to weigh that up against the investments you need to make in public services. But is Cyclone Gabrielle going to change your plans on that? Well, Cyclone Gabrielle gives us all pause for thought, but we have to, as a political party, offer New Zealanders a tax policy, and we will do that. What's this going to do to the likelihood of a recession? It's an interesting thing, because in the near term, it's going to affect economic growth. I mean, we're talking about, if you include Auckland, 58% of New Zealand's GDP has been affected by a weather event in the last month. Mm. Clearly, that's going to slow production. You know, we've lost an enormous part of our pit fruit crop. Um, Coomera in Northland, there's this, all of these impacts. So in the short term, that is going to slow economic growth. Oddly enough, because of the way we measure economic growth, once we get into the recovery phase, 
actually this yeah. will stimulate the yeah, economy. And it may well be that some of those construction firms who were concerned about where they were heading in the second half of mm. this year now will have more work. Now, that's not a good thing, obviously, in terms of those people's lives, but actually it may well help stimulate the economy later in the year. So what is your best guess at this stage? Are we going to have a recession? Yeah, I continue to work towards New Zealand avoiding a recession. I think that's part of my job here. And this hasn't changed the equation? It hasn't changed that goal. Globally, the economy is slowing significantly, and all of the forecasts will still tell you that we're heading towards a recession in New Zealand. But I want to keep working to keep New Zealanders in work and get sustainable growth. Let's talk about the EQC. So New Zealand's state disaster insurer only had about $300 million leading up to these weather events. We know that the Auckland floods from January are going to cost about $100 million. It has a government backstop. I appreciate that the EQC doesn't explicitly pay out for floods, but it is responsible for things like clearing silt and debris on roadways. Will it require that government backstop? Yeah, again, too early to say, but the bottom line is there is a backstop. And so the EQC, um, we have the levy-based system and they have what's called reinsurance to back them up. If all of that doesn't fulfil the need, then the government backstop comes into force. And look, it would be, as you're pointing out, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. The government simply has to find that because that's our job. Right, that $4.5 billion operating allowance, is it going to change? Uh, that's what we're reassessing now. Um, you can imagine the pressure. That means yes. No, you can imagine the pressure. It doesn't mean no and it doesn't mean yes. We're reassessing it. But you can imagine the pressure that responding to a massive event like this will have. And again, I think New Zealanders would expect us to do this. We save for a rainy day. Right. We happen to be having a lot of them at the moment. But we will respond, and so yeah, we'll look at the allowances clearly because we've got to make sure we provide the public services people need. Do you have a sense as to what that operating allowance should extend to, if, no, it, if it does? Not at this point, no. Um, you've announced a program this morning to assist people in making insurance claims in the worst hit areas. How will that work? Yeah, so this is built off um, what we did in Canterbury. Uh, a lot of people when they were dealing with their homes after the Christchurch earthquakes really struggled to deal with insurance companies. I do want to say that in the immediate aftermath of these incidents, I think the insurance companies are behaving responsibly. But we do know that as time wears on, there will be difficult and challenging cases. This service, the New Zealand Claims Resolution Service, is designed to support people with the technical work, the advisory work, getting through the difficult relationships that yeah. can emerge. It worked really well in Christchurch, and now we want the whole of the country to have access to it. I said I wanted to start with the immediate response and finish with the big picture. If we look at Tairawhiti, we look at Hawke's Bay, we look at Coromandel, Auckland even, roads gone, bridges gone, pipes smashed, communications networks absolutely woeful. Why has our infrastructure been so decimated? Because we have not invested enough in making our infrastructure resilient over the years. And secondly, our adaptation approach to climate change has not been uh, sufficiently robust. They're my two pieces of diagnosis. In terms of the infrastructure investment, I can stand proudly on our record that we've significantly increased the amount of money we've put into infrastructure over the time I've been here, and we've got another $60 billion going in over the next five years. But the reality is the deficit is so large that we will not be able to make that up in the short term. So there are some big questions to answer about how we long-term sustainably fund transport. Um, horizontal infrastructure like water and power and so on. 
As a government, we've been doing work on that, what that looks like. Last year at the budget, I increased the, the debt ceiling we had, and when I did that, I acknowledged that one of the reasons for doing that was to enable us to do better long-term investment in infrastructure. That being said, we only have about $40 billion left. I say only because the deficit, I think most economists would agree, is in the hundreds of millions, if not trillions of dollars. So if we're $40 billion off hitting that debt ceiling, how will we fund some of these longer-term yeah, questions? Yeah, and, and of course that grows over time. You don't do yeah, it all yeah, yeah. within just a short but period. But I mean, um, revenue as percentage yeah. of GDP is not substantially increasing. Yeah. So look, it does require a partnership approach. And so part of that is the government working with the private sector, local government, iwi, people who want to invest in that long-term infrastructure. During this last term of government, for the first time, we brought in place an infrastructure commission. We've actually got a strategy now, a proper long-term strategy that looks at climate change, and we've actually got a pipeline of work now that, that people can see. So we have to build off that to make sure we provide New Zealanders with the certainty of investment. But Jack, the, the other part of that is the adaptation challenge and the incredibly difficult conversations that are going to need to take place in communities around New Zealand about whether where we live and the infrastructure we need to get to and from where we live is sufficient in the era of climate change. We're still a year away from that legislation, though. But that's the point. The legislative framework's important, but there's decisions to be made well before then. You know, I was out in, in a couple of days ago in Henderson talking to people who live there about their exact moment now. And this two words New Zealanders are going to get used to hearing over the next few years is managed retreat. We have to understand where communities can be made more resilient, where we can do things to the infrastructure so they can stay where they are, and other communities and neighbourhoods where actually we have to accept it's no longer appropriate. Those questions need to be answered in advance of the legislation in many places. That work's already underway, but it's an incredibly important part. We've got to still do emissions reduction, we've got to make sure we do our best there, but we also have to do adaptation. It sounds as though you're much more focused on adaptation rather than mitigation. Absolutely not. I mean, we've got a massive emissions reduction plan and a, you know, a process that we're going through to support New Zealanders in that transition. I just think there's an adaptation piece that we haven't talked about as much. The legislation that James Shaw is leading will help a lot in that regard, but there's work to be done before that. But, but see, this is the legacy of, of, of your government. It's frameworks. It's, it's plans that future governments will have to make. And I, and I look at the five and a half years since you came to government, our biggest emitting industry still isn't paying a cent for its emissions. Even as recently as a few weeks ago, your government chose to extend the, the fuel excise tax cut yet again. Our emissions remain more or less flat over the time you've been in government. Should you have acted with more urgency to address the root cause of climate change? No, I don't, I don't accept that at all. If you look at what we did with the Zero Carbon Act, with the Climate Commission, with the Emissions Reduction Plan, with our Climate Emergency Response Fund, we have moved as quickly as we responsibly could do. We have the plans in place. What I'm talking about now, though, is the work we're already doing. In communities like Westport, where we're already working with them about how they can adapt. We have to be able to do both, Jack. I'm talking and about mitigation, though. And, 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 and my you know, answer to you is that we are doing both. But I don't think it would be responsible to New Zealanders to just say, you know, we're only going to focus on emissions reduction. We have to do that. But people live their daily lives now in a situation where if those communities go back and rebuild today, are we being responsible letting them do that? It's a huge question, and both of those things are important.
That's Finance Minister Grant Robertson. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Shortly, we're going to talk to an insurance expert about the ways in which Gabrielle will change the way we all think about and pay for insurance. And then what is it about our telecommunications network that in 2023, five days since the cyclone, thousands of people are still uncontactable? Dina Koto, welcome back to Q&A. Both Labor and National have talked this week about the importance of mitigation and managed retreat. But if the political system lags, the insurance sector may speed up some of the changes necessary to reshape our communities. Think about it. No insurance, no mortgage. Emma Witz is an actuary who consults on risk analysis for insurance companies, and she's with us this morning. Tēnā Emma. Thank, uh, Emma, thanks for being with us. What have we learned from the events this week? Thanks for having me, Jack. Um, so I think what we've learned is that it's time to take flood as seriously as some of the other perils that we have a lot of experience with in New Zealand. So we have um, spent years becoming experts at managing earthquake risk, and we've done that really well. So insurance companies, the government, and the building industry have invested heavily in understanding earthquake risk and making sure that insurance for earthquake is available and affordable, um, and in developing building standards to keep people safe in the event of an earthquake. And we haven't spent as much time or as much energy uh, on doing this for other perils. Mm. But I think it actually puts us in a really good position where we have a lot of experience in making our communities stronger. And it's time to start applying those to, um, to perils such as flood and storm. So, so explain that to me. When you say it puts us in a really good position, do you mean the insurance sector or do you mean the rest of us I as mean consumers? I mean New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean government, I mean the insurance industry, um, I mean the building industry, and I mean New Zealanders as well. So, so what impact do you think this will have on the way that insurance companies approach the New Zealand insurance market? Um, so obviously we don't price insurance based on single events. We um, look at long-term averages, mm. and we do know that climate change is increasing the likelihood of these kinds of events. And insurance companies do need to make sure that they're um, operating sustainably across their whole business. Um, and that, that does include pricing. So they do need to review whether their prices are set at such a level that they can actually continue to pay out claims um, you know, in, in times of need in the future. Yeah, let's talk about risk-based pricing, and that's a term that might not be familiar to some of our viewers. So perhaps could, could you begin by just explaining what risk-based pricing actually is? Sure. So risk-based pricing is basically when the premium that you're charged um, for an insurance policy is based on you as an individual risk as opposed to perhaps um, the risk that your suburb represents, for example. Mm. Um, and that tends to be the direction that the insurance industry is heading in. But in New Zealand right now, we do still have quite a bit of community rating, which is sort of that um, you know, aggregated rating. And um, what that means is that there's still quite a bit of cross-subsidisation in the insurance premiums that people are being charged right now. So to put that in layman's terms, uh, insurance companies 
might look at your postcode or might look at the city you live in when it comes to pricing insurance premiums as opposed to looking at properties on an individual scale. I think that'll come as a surprise to some people. Why doesn't New Zealand have a more sophisticated risk-based pricing system like many markets in Australia, for example? Into that. Um, one is that there is, you know, obviously insurance has a social function in keeping um, in offering people financial stability and um, community rating does tend to sort of smooth the insurance premiums that people experience. And I think some, um, you know, that is that is an important part of that. The other component of this is that in order to do risk-based pricing, you need to have data on individual buildings or individual risks. <clears throat> so as that data becomes more available in New Zealand, um, that actually enables insurers to um, make their pricing a little bit more sophisticated. And that's something that has been uh, happening over the past few years. Right, but we can expect it to happen more off the back of this event. I think it's the direction that the insurance industry is going mm. in general. Um, I don't think this is going to be a response to this particular event, but rather just the market dynamics as a whole. What will that mean for people who have particularly flood-prone properties? So I think it's important to remember that when we see issues around insurance affordability, which is not something that is particularly pronounced in New Zealand at this point in time, but when we do see those issues, what that's actually a symptom of is a wider problem of risk. And so if we want to maintain insurance affordability, which is really important, the best way of doing that is actually to address the risk issue. Um, and so that means investing heavily in resilience measures. And it also means that we need to be judicious about where we build in New Zealand. And in that way, we can move towards um, a situation where People are safe, which is obviously the most important thing, mm. but they're also able to purchase insurance and, and keep that cover. Okay, we've just heard from the finance minister who acknowledges we have an infrastructure shortfall in New Zealand <coughs> in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars. And clearly it's gonna take time for us to have infrastructure that is fit for purpose as the climate changes. Is there a foreseeable scenario in which homes in New Zealand will no longer be insurable? So I think that what we tend to see is that there are um, prices increase before cover is withdrawn. So I want to be really clear that um, insurers do not withdraw cover, you know, kind of on a whim. Mm. Um, so what people will see is that their prices may increase slightly before they, before they um, have any issues getting insurance. Okay, when you say slightly, if we were to take an example and look at, say, the Esk Valley, which is perhaps one of the hardest hit regions in Cyclone Gabrielle, when you say insurance premiums might increase slightly, does that mean by a matter of you know, hundreds of dollars or $1,000 a year, or are we talking about increases in premiums of 500 or 1,000%? So I think um, this is a, you know, it's, it's a question that we can't answer at this stage. And right now, obviously, insurers are focused on processing their claims and making sure that people get back into safe houses and safe cars. Um, obviously, at some stage, they will need to consider, you know, how they deal with this kind of thing. But it's mm. not a question that we can answer right now.
there are some difficult questions around managed retreat that New Zealand will be forced to confront in the next few years. I just want to know, do, do the market forces within the insurance sector have the capacity to achieve change on a greater scale than perhaps our political system? Um, so I think, the, I think managed retreat is a really, is sort of the very pointy end of the spectrum of um, resilience measures that we can take for flood or for storm. Mm. There is a lot that happens before something like that is considered. And um, we need to sort of work through that spectrum and make sure that we're, you know, intervening um, in a way that keeps people safe. And there may be a very small percentage of uh, properties in New Zealand where the managed retreat does become um, the best option. But for the vast majority, there'll be other interventions that we can um, do mm. first. Emma, knowing what you know about climate change, risk and insurance, I just wondered, how, how would you go about finding a home in which to live? <laughs> this is an interesting question. So what I would always encourage people to do is really inform themselves and take this seriously when they're buying a house. So I think sometimes it's a little bit of an afterthought. Um, people think about, you know, where are my kids going to go to school or, um, you know, does it have a nice garden? But thinking about... Um, natural perils risk is actually really important. And so that involves looking at the LIM report. It involves going to your local council website and looking at their flood modeling, um, if they have it. And um, I would also encourage people to get some insurance quotes and see what, um, what information they can get out of that. Because one advantage of risk-based pricing is actually that the premium does give you some information. It tells you, you know, how much risk do insurers think that this property uh, represents? Mm. Okay. Hey, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. That's Emma Witz, who's an actuary who consults on risk analysis for insurance companies. After the break on Q&A, we're used to slips on our roads and problems with water infrastructure, but one of the biggest challenges this week has been comms. Thousands of Kiwis have been uncontactable for days, desperate to reach their loved ones. In the information age, we ask, how can we improve the system? There will be many images that stick with me from this week, but there was a moment on TVNZ's breakfast we found particularly confronting the other day. Have a look at this. On Thursday, residents in some of the worst affected areas asked our colleagues on the ground to put their names on the TV so that their loved ones who were watching breakfast at home would know they were safe. That was days after the storm. And those displaced by the cyclone are asking how in 2023 vital communication services failed them. Here's Fina Owen. For those impacted by disaster, human connection is a fundamental need. No cell phone coverage or very little, no internet. That's sort of like back to the Stone Age almost. There's the need to get messages through to family. Raymond, do you want to say anything to the whānau that might be watching? Um, just to our whānau that um, we're alive. This week, some messages have been communicated in and out of the emergency zones via radio and television. Ricardo Halley wants his mum to know um, that him and her grandson are all OK. More acutely, mobile connection can be an issue of survival. There was no um, communication, so... 
people only had, um, you know, minutes to react to it. No cellular connection means civil defence alerts can't get through, and neither can 111 calls. Computer scientist Dr Ulrich Speidel has concerns that emergency services have been scaling back their own radio networks. And they've started issuing emergency vehicles um, with uh, cell phones for communication. And of course, now if the mobile phone network, which is not designed for resiliency, goes down, then we immediately end up in this situation that it also affects emergency services um, in, in a lot of area. So why has our cellular network failed in cyclone hit areas? The problem is not the cell phone towers. They've come through the cyclone undamaged but they rely on electricity to work. So if the power's cut, they have an inbuilt uh, contingency battery life of four to eight hours, and then after that, you're on your own. Hello, Paul. Paul Brislin is the spokesperson for the telecommunications sector. We've got to understand that this is largely a, uh, a problem of power supply rather than the telco sector. It absolutely is not um, a matter of trying to apportion blame. Uh, we're, we're simply pointing out how the network operates. It's it's an active network. If you don't switch it on, if you can't if you can't provide electricity to the network, uh, then it won't work. In terms of the telcos, um, they know what they can do to make their sites more more resilient. I mean, for example, um, you know they could make sure that every site uh, that's uh, you know of strategic significance uh, has a, um, a, a diesel generator. Um, they could be looking at, for example, running a site off solar. But of course, all of that adds cost, and so that. Again, Again, is then something that we throw back again to the consumer, um, and you know, to the uh, and you know, to, to the to the government to a certain extent. Minister Jenny Anderson has the communications portfolio. A customer now is expecting that there's reliability in the service that they're buying, and I'm really keen to make sure that we give people uh, that that confidence in the network. And I think there's some work to be done in the face of more extreme climate change events like the one we've seen. Do you think the telcos have a social responsibility? I think they certainly have a social responsibility to their customers, and you know, to be fair, a lot of them make a lot of money. Um, but at the same time, uh, uh, you know, also. This is of a magnitude where basically, you know, it's often not justifiable under, uh, you know, under a business, um, uh, you know, under a business, you know, plan. Some telcos are now offering a week's free data for customers affected by the cyclone. So how bad is the damage to your house? Is it? Oh, she's a roidal. It's this stage of the recovery that serious failings in our networks, our disaster resilience, are becoming apparent. It is going to be expensive. It's going to require some really big calls by government to actually get the things happening that need to happen. We're talking about roading, we're talking about telecommunications, we're talking about electricity and energy. There's no question. We've got some big challenges ahead. I'll be making sure I continue the open lines of communication with those major companies to do the best we can for the future, and I'm always keen for new ideas how we can do that. One of those new ideas be to regulate them more so that they invest in that hardware? I'll need to know the full extent of what we've got to through this, uh, through this national emergency. The power and telco sectors both concede there are lessons. There will be uh, a, a lot of meetings and a lot of conversations around how do we 
work with partners like the power sector? How do we work with government to ensure that uh, power supply is, is consistent, the, uh, the cell phone network and the, and the landline networks are all able to be deployed, and what options there are out there for consumers? A Tairawhiti community ravaged by multiple floods is looking to alternatives and fundraising for those backups themselves. Tina Ngata from Manaki Matakaua sent us these comments with the help of a generator. The highest risk of loss of life is in the first 24 to 48 hours. And that's when you really need to be able to check in on people and that's just not possible with the comms network that we have. They want to raise $200,000 for Starlink satellite kits, generators, sat phones and batteries. Our call for an improved communications and power infrastructure is not just new, it's not just because of Cyclone Gabriel. We've been calling out for this for years. Here comes the Starlink satellites releasing from the second stage. And after some success connecting Tongans after the eruption, National MP Dr Shane Retty thought he'd hit up Elon Musk again to supply bulk Starlink kits here. In the meantime, technicians from the Talcos are working around the clock, many in rough terrain, to get their customers reconnected. Fina Owen with that report. After the break on Q&A, what have this year's weather events taught us about where and what houses we should be building? Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. Most of Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, escaped the worst of Cyclone Gabrielle. But given the storm was the city's second major weather event this year, it has intensified the debate over development in our biggest cities. Mark Todd is the co-founder of housing developer Ockham, and he's with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Oh, good morning, Jack. As someone who is immersed in the world of development, land zoning, consenting and infrastructure, how do you look at these kinds of weather events? I think you, my first response is that it, it, it is regionally specific to the region. Yeah. You know, you can look at Auckland, we've got, you know, a few hundred yellow and red stickered houses. Largely, they uh, you represent historic um, mistakes or places we shouldn't have been building. Right. We're somewhere like, uh, you know, Hawke's Bay and Riverbend, that's, you know, that is really a poor decision. Um, so I think it's, while it's annoying dealing with floodplains and managing stormwater outflows and so forth and very expensive, it's essential. So I think the big lesson is to take it seriously is you, the first lesson. Yeah, I, I, I want to dig a bit more into that a little bit more. I mean, Knowing that these kinds of events are going to become more frequent and are going to affect different regions, what do you think are the key lessons about where we develop going forward? I think we need to understand that building towns and cities up, you know, up to and including large cities like Auckland is a collective activity and there must be some sort of conception of what's best for that city and that community. I think you'll find a lot of property development in particular is driven by private sector interest and historical expertise and just land development. Um, so I, I think that needs to be balanced against what's good for NZ Inc. So policy responses you know, from our government this you know, last six years have ranged from excellence, which is the national policy statement urban development. Right. Um, it's great that we've got the three waters policy. There's some issues around it, but it's great policy that will address underinvestment over two or three generation in pipes. 
Um, you know, and that, that's a political issue at local government. There's not enough money to pay for those pipes, ranging through to quite poor responses like medium de density residential standards that literally pay no fine-grained uh, attention to where the pipes are in our communities around New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. talk to me a bit more about that. What, what is the end result of that policy? Well, it, it, it forces you know, local councils to issue housing intensification permits, um, which to, may not have the infrastructure uh, capacity to, to properly drain and service those houses for three waters. Mm. And aside from that, in a context like Auckland, and I apologise for those listeners that don't live in Auckland, the MRDS standards just facilitate terraced housing, mm. um, which won't revolve in a single house being built that's, you know, um, below the median house price in the existing suburban environment. I, I think it is important that we do focus on Auckland to, it, to mm. a certain extent because obviously it's our biggest city, it's a major driver um, of our economy. There have been calls in Auckland for, more, for a moratorium on further intensification over concerns that existing infrastructure cannot cope with greater density. How do you respond to those calls? Um, I think the two issues have been conflated. Um, for example, I've just finished 117 unit development in, in Avondale in the apartment sector. Mm. I've covered, you know, 3,000 square metres, pretty much 100% coverage. That's 28 square metres of impermeous stormwater drainage per unit. You take that uh, similar 117 units out to a greenfield subdivision location, mm. the house itself is probably 150 square metres plus a 50 square metre driveway and hectares of roading that's gone through. So it's like in an order of 30 to 40 times more impermeable coverage that goes down into our rivers, lakes and seas um, for each house that's built in the, you know, in greenfield environment. So I think the real message here is not to put a moratorium on urban regeneration. It's to make those substantial investments in the three waters that, you know, urban environment, you know, has, has been lacking for the last three generations. You talked about some of the central government policies. What about local government policies? To what extent should local councils be liable for consenting development in areas that are super vulnerable to flooding? Again, that's a, it depends on which council you're talking about. So I've got a range of views. For example, I was actually in the Hastings uh, District Council down there in Vyra to have a look at a couple of you know, early small stage apartment developments prior to Christmas. Mm. And I was quite surprised to see the conflict between you know, high value um, horticulture and viticulture land, floodplains and where, where housing um, mm. could go. So I think they've got specific issues around there. Again, you've got to understand it's, it shouldn't be private land owners or developers driving and pushing for where that development is. We've got similar issues in Auckland around Drury and Pukekohe where private developers are trying to really push development that you know, as a city and any normal planner wouldn't be encouraging, especially when it's some of Aotearoa's you know, best um, you know, vegetable producing country. So there's those issues that are specific. And a third one, um, you know, I'm only talking about areas I know. Mm. Tauranga is having real issues with sprawl down to Opotiki, really. And that, again, is, you know, I'm getting a bit stuck in, but is actually the tail wagging the dog, a private sector with an historical capacity to deliver housing through land, really explo exploitation. And we've only got a newer capacity that's still, you know, two generations behind Sydney or Melbourne and you know, eight or ten generations behind European cities. Mm. We've just got to get better at urban intensification and not stop it. You, you heard the Finance Minister earlier talking about the two priorities from central government, adaptation and mitigation when it comes to climate change. Why do we have such a significant infrastructure shortfall? <laughs> I, I think it's our great grandparents 
and grandparents invested in infrastructure, there was a social cohesion, some idea of the civic collectivism that's been lost. And I think it's been fairly clear that since the 80s we've had a rather laissez-faire approach to infrastructure collectively and, you know, and debt and the first generation will do it or pay for it. And so I, I think this is a really good opportunity to open up a conversation of, you know, a team of five million. This is about actually a reprioritisation mm. of the collective good over the you know, needs of an individual or, or a worldview where user pays. You know, I, I think that's, you know, I'm trying to stick at a high level, but I, I mm. sincerely believe that, that that's a, a Chicago school of business sort of rot that began in the 80s. And we're, we're seeing that the fruits of that now, like it's appalling the state of our infrastructure. What does that mean in practice then? If, we're, if we've got more of a collective approach to fixing our infrastructure shortfall? Well, I think Three Waters is an example. That's a practical approach. We need to take it seriously. Local councils do not have the funds. It's, mm. it's been poorly managed. Um, it's been taken seriously. We need to uh, you know, change our political approach to how we deliver. Do local councils have enough support from central government when it comes to trying to develop infrastructure that's appropriate for greater urban density? My, my view is not. Um, there's a practical reason for that, that if a city grows, particularly a city like Auckland, it, it doesn't, its funding tools to pay for the infrastructure that growth are not increased by central government as they would be for instance in Germany where a city gets rewarded for growth. Um, and secondly, local governments, as we all know, has quite a few um, real politic issues in that very few people vote, around 30%, and they're all in the older generation. So it's quite hard to get a balance to response about where a city's expenditure priorities are. Um, so there's that issue around local politics, which I think it's, it's kind of dysfunctional and it, it's not representative of the, you know, the citizens of a city, how the, a general council works. Mm. Um, we heard earlier in the programme about risk-based pricing when it comes to insurance. Is that something that you think is likely to drive some of the change in New Zealand as we move to more of a risk-based pricing model? I, I think it will, is, is, is my personal opinion. I'm not an expert in the area, but and it's got to come. I mean, I've got a coastal property at Karikari, and lucky that my personal one was, was fine, but the community out there has been devastated, and, and pricing signals will come through, particularly for coastal property and property around uh, you know, river flats and river plains, mm. that, that pricing signal will come through and I, and I think it will ultimately come through in our district plans and unitary plans, policy about where we can build. This has been a terrible event. Obviously the focus is on the immediate response. But is this an opportunity? I think it is. So I've tried to describe the opportunity and I, the opportunity is, is to work together, you know, the private sector, you know, the Crown and local governments to to take it sick, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, ah, antagonism and um, conflict in the property development sector, primarily because there's so much money at stake. And, and I don't think that all the voices are equally weighted. The private sector's got a lot of money. And so I am getting stuck into the private sector. They've got a lot of influence. They do a lot of lobbying. Whereas academics and planners, you know, they're often in, in the current zeitgeist you know, described as pointing headers, pointy headed, or they don't know what they're doing. So I think this is a huge opportunity to, to bring people together to talk about these issues seriously, because we're actually quite a small, cohesive country. Mm. We should be taking a more Scandinavian approach, which is thoughtful. Mm. Okay.
Hey, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank Mark you. Todd from Ockham. All right, thank you. Kumutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. To everyone affected in Coromandel, Tāmaki, Tairawhiti and Hawke's Bay, kia kaha. Hey tērā wiki, we will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.